starting with six, chapter, verse, chapter 6, verse 1. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. May God bless to us this reading from his holy word. All right. Thank you. Well, if uh, you follow me anytime, I, I am a big fan of Star Trek. I have, I have to admit, uh, I've been a fan of Star Trek ever since the, the original Star Trek came out. Uh, in the 1960s, although uh, I must admit I probably didn't watch it until it was in reruns uh, in the early 1970s. I'm, I'm not that old after all, uh, but, but I always loved Star Trek. It was great when uh, they came out with The Next Generation. I wasn't sure I was going to like it in the 1980s, but, but that was good. Uh, the films were okay, uh, some of them better than others, and then uh, then you had uh, Deep Space Nine, which is one of my favorites because it had a lot of spiritual issues in it, uh, and uh, I enjoyed that. Then Star Trek Voyager, uh, they were, got kicked over on the other side of the galaxy and had to come back. Uh, that was pretty good. And, uh, and then you had uh, Star Trek Enterprise uh, more recently, and there's a new series now on Netflix, which is okay. It's not my favorite <clears throat> but, it, but it's okay. But I've been a fan of Star Trek. And one of the, the fundamental things with Star Trek, if you've ever watched it, is how their ships, the propulsion of their ships. Uh, and the propulsion of their ships is based on something called antimatter. It's an antimatter drive propulsion in their ships. And that's what enables them to engage in faster than light travel. And the interesting thing about antimatter is that it's real. There really is antimatter. I didn't even really know that until a few years ago. Uh, I thought it was just something that somebody made up. But like many things in Star Trek, there are some bases in science. And so you have this, this idea of antimatter. And antimatter is exactly uh, what it says on the tin. Uh, and antimatter is a corresponding with a, a piece of matter and antimatter and matter, when they come together, they annihilate one another. What a cool idea is that, huh? Uh, and so if you had an antimatter self, you know, like if Dora had an antimatter Dora, and Dora and antimatter Dora came together, they'd blow up. You know, and that's a fundamental thing with Star Trek, you know? If the antimatter ever gets out of the containment field, then everything goes a really big boom and everybody dies. And so that's like a really bad thing to happen. Uh, and so you always have the engineer, you know, Scotty in the original track, oh, hey, Captain, uh, I cannot fix that. We're going to die, you know, kind of thing. And, but he always seems to pull it out in the end, and they, and they don't die. Uh, but, but antimatter is real. And actually, scientists are doing research on antimatter. 
Uh, we've heard about CERN and the particle accelerator. Well, there's actually a particle decelerator uh, that is trying to experiment on antimatter. Uh, and the problem is that we can't create enough antimatter really to be useful. Uh, just to create a few grams of antimatter would cost uh, hundreds of millions of pounds uh, to try to bring that into existence. And then if some you know, science guy, he's having his cup of tea uh, and he accidentally leaves the antimatter containment open, then he blows up the universe and we're all dead. Uh, so, so there's concerns about it, but it really does exist and it really is something that annihilates matter. Antimatter and matter are completely opposed to one another uh, and when you have matter and antimatter together, they cease to exist. Now you might think, what in the world does this have to do with Jesus? No, I'm not suggesting that Jesus was an alien. Uh, that was, you know, there, there are some people who suggest that. That's not what I'm saying here. Uh, and I'm not saying that, you know, there's a gospel according to Star Trek. Uh, I'm not saying that either. Uh, but you might say, well, you know, what does this have to do with anything? Well, Jesus, he encounters antimatter or a form of antimatter in this story that we read today. Now, the last few weeks, what we've been doing, we started earlier in Mark, and we've done just a, a brief survey of a few chapters of Mark here. Uh, and we saw how Jesus was preaching about the kingdom and talking about the kingdom and how faith is what links the kingdom to the earth. And so we need to live by faith and we need to minister by faith. And as we serve by faith, we're actually linking the power of the kingdom of God through our relationship with God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We're linking that power onto the earth. And then uh, a, a few weeks ago, we saw how that power is really quite considerable as Jesus calmed the storm and also as he cast out 5,000 demons from one man uh, just with a word, we see the incredible power of the kingdom and how the faith that Jesus had and the faith that he exercised access that power in relationship with the Father to do these great miracles. Uh, and then last week we saw how uh, that, that faith in Jesus that was connecting again the power of the kingdom in relationship with his father in order to bless people and bring healing to the woman who had the, the issue of blood that she'd been struggling with for 12 years and then suddenly she was free uh, and healed and then uh, Jairus' daughter who was deathly ill, in fact she dies and Jesus goes in and, and heals her. And we saw that really interesting thing in the story there where Jesus only takes James, Peter, James, and John with him, and Jairus' mom and, and dad, uh, are, are the, uh, the Jairus' daughter, uh, Jairus and, and his wife, uh, to go in to heal uh, and to, to pray for her and to see her raised from the dead. And so they, they go in there, and everybody else he puts out. And we thought, okay, why is Jesus putting everybody else out and we saw a little bit about that and its relationship to faith. But now this week, we see all this come to pass. So Jesus now, he goes back to his hometown. He goes back to Nazareth. And he's teaching and he's doing the kind of thing that he's done everywhere else he's gone. He goes to the synagogue and he teaches. And then occasionally sick people pop up or demonized people pop up. And, uh, and he heals them. 
uh, or he does a mighty work or some kind of miracle or something like that. And, and, and Jesus goes through that. So he goes to his hometown and he's proclaiming the word of God. Now this is a primary thing. Jesus, everywhere he went, he brought the kingdom of God. And he brought the kingdom of God in two ways, in two strands. First of all, he taught about the kingdom. And then he demonstrated the kingdom. This, he's doing this everywhere he goes. He teaches about the kingdom, then he demonstrates the kingdom. He teaches the kingdom, and then he demonstrates the kingdom. So when he heals the sick, that's a demonstration of God's loving rulership. When he raises the dead, that's a demonstration of God's kingdom. Uh, when he casts out a demon, that's a demonstration of God's kingdom. And Jesus is always doing these two things. And Jesus is always doing these two things by faith in relationship with his father. So his father sends him, he goes where the father sends him, he says what the father tells him to say, and then he does what the father tells him to do, and he does that by faith, and that faith then is what's connecting the power of the kingdom through the spirit of God that dwells inside of him. And remember, when he was baptized, the spirit of God comes upon him and empowers him to do his ministry. And so he's going and he's doing this. He teaches the kingdom and then he demonstrates the kingdom. And so here in Nazareth, he comes in and he's going to follow his pattern. So he goes into the synagogue and he teaches the kingdom of God. And then notice what the people say. It's like, okay, who does this guy think he is? That's the spirit behind what they're saying here in the text. Who does this guy think he is? I mean, what is this wisdom that he's sharing with us? I mean, because we know, we know this guy. You know, this is the carpenter. He's the guy that worked alongside his dad until his dad died. Joseph, his dad, not God, his father. Of course, they don't realize that yet. Now, here's the guy who's doing this. We've seen him. We saw him when he was a little kid. We saw him playing football with, with his friends. We saw him at his lemonade stand. I don't know if he had a lemonade stand, but you know, they can say we saw him you know, when he was selling lemonade, and it was pretty decent lemonade, and somehow it never seemed to run out. But no, that's not... That, actually, he didn't do miracles before he was filled with the Holy Spirit, uh, so don't, get, don't let me get carried away. Uh, you know, we, we saw this guy. He grew up. We know his mom. We know his sisters. We know his brothers. Who does he think he is? And here's Jesus. You know, as he says, well, you know, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his friends and among his relatives. And the text says that Jesus could do no mighty works there because of their unbelief. It's because of their unbelief. And it's at this point that we see antimatter. This word unbelief, we really could probably better translate it as anti-faith. Anti-faith. Anti-faith annihilated faith. Anti-faith neutralized faith. 
When faith and anti-faith come together, not much can happen. Now, what is this anti-faith? What is this unbelief? Well, it's not doubt. This is not, oh, I'm not sure if God can do this miracle. This is not, does this, is this really what God wants me to do? This is not a question that comes up in our mind. This is not us struggling with something that the Bible says or that we're supposed to do. This is not doubt. That's not what it means by unbelief or anti-faith. It's not doubt. God will work in spite of our doubts. And I think sometimes God might even work because of our doubts, as long as we are in a relationship of faith with him through Jesus in the Holy Spirit. Doubt does not neutralize faith. Anti-faith is also not a lack of faith. It is not a lack of faith. Now, most of us, most of us, we realize we don't have as much faith as we'd like to have. We don't have as much belief as we'd like. We don't have as much confidence as we'd want. We recognize this. We understand this. This is not anti-faith. I remember the, the story of the, the guy who had, you know, he wanted his kid to be healed. And Jesus says, all things are possible to him who believes. And he said, well, I believe, but help my unbelief. He's not saying here, help my anti-faith. He's saying, help my lack of faith. I believe, but I'd like to believe more. I believe, but I'd li- I, I, I want to have more of this faith. The lack of faith is not the same thing as anti-faith. Oh, that's not good. We'll deal with that later. It's not the same thing. That's not what it means here. Anti-faith is the refusal to believe. Anti-faith is the refusal to have faith. Anti-faith is saying, I absolutely do not believe, I will not believe, I cannot believe, I will not accept this. This is anti-faith. And the presence of anti-faith always neutralizes faith. I mean, notice here in the text. Now, Jesus here, he's fully God, he's fully human, and he's doing all of his ministry on the earth as a human being. He has to live his life as we live our lives. Otherwise, he has an unfair advantage, and he can't really die as our representative. He can't really die on our behalf. So understand, he had to be fully human, and he lived his life as a full human being here, and he lived his life in the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, yet there was nobody more in tune with his father than Jesus. Jesus never sinned, he never did anything wrong, and he walked his life perfectly in line with the will of his father in heaven, unlike no other human being had ever done before or since that time. He was absolutely unique in this, And everywhere he went, he did miracles, and he was healing sick people, he was casting out demons, he was raising dead people. And the text here says that Jesus could not do any mighty works there because of their unbelief. 
Now, whether or not Jesus chose not to do any mighty works, as some interpreters will say, or whether or not Jesus was actually bound in some way so he absolutely could not do any mighty works is actually immaterial. Doesn't really make a whole lot of difference because the outcome is the same. Because of their anti-faith, because of their anti-faith, Jesus could not, would not do any mighty works in their presence, except heal a few sick people. Now that phrase there always challenges me because it makes me wonder sometimes, you know, I would normally be happy with just healing a few sick people. I celebrate if, if we had a few sick people. I mean, we've got a, a few sick people in our church and I want to see them healed. Uh, and I'm frustrated that they're not healed. And, and I, you know, there, there's some Sundays we come together and I'm thinking, okay, give me somebody with a cold, you know, maybe allergies or something. Let's, you know, let's pray. Oh, okay, anybody with a hangnail? Let's pray for hangnails here. Uh, you know, there'll be happy days when a few sick people are healed. And yet that was considered an anti-faith moment in the life of Jesus, in the ministry of Jesus. And it really challenges me and sometimes questions, okay, how far have we come? But where there is the presence of anti-faith, faith will not operate fluidly or effectively. That's why Jesus did not allow the mourners to come into Jairus' house. That's why he put them all out. Because he did not want anti-faith to neutralize what he intended to do by raising the girl from the dead. This anti-faith is quite powerful. This also explains why a lot of times in, in our lives we get in ministry situations or others where we're, we're moving by faith, we have a great degree of confidence that God wants to do something and we step in with that confidence and somehow it just kind of falls apart. It's because Many times, even in the church, there is the presence of anti-faith. You know, there are a lot of Christians who don't believe that God heals today. There are a lot of Christians that don't believe that God could cast out demons today. There are a lot of Christians that believe that God doesn't raise the dead today. That's kind of an anti-faith moment. And where that anti-faith exists, it's no wonder that we don't see God do more. And if you're walking in your life and you're having this attitude in your life, well, God can't change my situation, do you know that that's anti-faith? I've, had a lot, I've had talked with a lot of Christians over the years who say, yeah, but, but my, my struggles are just too big for God to deal with them. And then they never get healed. Why? Because they're operating in anti-faith. If you refuse to believe that God can do what he says he wants to do, guess what? God won't do what he says he wants to do. And again, I'm not talking about if you doubt that he's going to do it. I'm not talking about if you don't have as much faith that he will do it as you want. I'm talking about if you refuse to believe it. Back, uh, back in January, the Lord spoke to me about the building redevelopment. And I felt like the Lord told me that by the end of June, that we would have something that was fully funded. Now, I haven't really said that a lot because my, my prophetic timing doesn't tend to be all that great a lot of times. 
And the Lord also said with regard, you know, we were talking about putting uh, uh, maybe an office building on the back half of the church and having to sell some of the, the, uh, the freehold to do that. The Lord told me, no, that's not his will. We won't do that. Uh, but before we have to say no to the people working on that, he would give us the thing to say yes to. And that's amazing. I, I don't know what's exactly going to happen with all this in the latest rounds of negotiation. It might very well be there. But the key is here, I've been through this so many times, I, I almost, you know, I was afraid to believe it. I was hesitant. But, you know, I wrote it in my prophetic journal, wrote it in the journal I kept. I've been praying about it. I've been giving it to the Lord. I've been trusting in the Lord. Now, I must admit, my faith hasn't been great. But you know what? I've resisted anti-faith. I will not have unbelief. And it's amazing, if you refuse unbelief and you just have a little belief, a little belief will go a long way. That's why Jesus said, if you only have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can say to the mountain, move into the heart of the sea. So we need to refuse this anti-faith. We need to refuse anti-faith. How do we do that? Well, part of it is remembering what these guys did. Uh, one of the reasons why they had anti-faith is that they refused to believe what Jesus was saying. They refused to believe the message. And if we refuse to believe the message, if we refuse to believe how the Lord is speaking to us, if we won't even allow it into our hearts and in our minds, that's unbelief, that's anti-faith, and that will neutralize anything that God wants to do in your life. It also has an effect in us together as a church. It takes a lot of faith to overcome anti-faith. That's the first thing that they did. The second thing was they got offended by the messenger. They got offended by the messenger. They stumbled because of the messenger. And notice how it says they took offense at him. He wasn't giving them offense. Uh, he wasn't causing offense, but they chose to take offense because they didn't like the package that it came in. Many times over the years I've prayed for people and we've had, you know, three, four, five people praying and I'll be one of those people and, you know, the queue of people in front of me is often bigger than the queue of people around everybody else. It's like, why? Doesn't mean that I have more faith than anybody else. In fact, sometimes I'm really struggling with my lack of faith. You know, you can assume that because, you know, you got this good-looking guy in front of you, you know, who's stylishly handsome, dresses well, and all of that, and, and that somehow, you know, he, he somehow is, a, is, is better than, say, Kenneth might be, you know, who's seven years old and praying for the sick. But, you know, I've seen little kids pray for the sick and see them, seen people healed more than I've seen adults do that. We must not get offended by the packages that God uses. And so often... We reject things because the package isn't right. We reject things because we don't like the way it looks. We reject things because they don't quite fit into our way of operating. They don't quite fit into our comfort zone. God asks us to do something that we don't really like, and we, we think, well, God couldn't possibly ask me to make a fool of myself. 
Well, guess what? Sometimes God does ask you to make a fool of yourself. Think about David when he danced before the Lord. And so we have to be careful not to be offended by the package the message comes in. And another dynamic of anti-faith that we see here operating is the dynamic of over-familiarity. If you've walked with the Lord for any period of time, you've heard all the stories. I've not only read this text from Mark more times than I can recount, I've also preached on this text from Mark more times than I can tell you. This is very, very familiar to me. And we can get so familiar hearing the stories, hearing how Jesus healed the sick, raised the dead, how the disciples were doing it, reading about this happening in the book of Acts and all these other kinds of things. All of this can happen and we get so familiar with it that we actually stop believing it. We get so familiar with it that we start to refuse it. Or we get so familiar with it, and this is probably one of the most common things that happens, we get so familiar with it and we get so tired that we feel like God has not shown up for us like we thought he promised he would show up for us. That we start to stop believing it. We run away from it. And just because God is late doesn't mean God is absent. And just because you think God has promised you something doesn't mean God actually promised you what you think he promised you. God's timing is a mystery and God's promises are mysteries. And that's why we have to have faith and trust him and know him. That's why our faith is founded in a true knowledge of God and his ways. Founded in the Bible, seeing that. Because we can get so familiar with it that we start to question. We can get so discouraged or disappointed at the length of time things have taken that we wonder if it even, was even God's will in the first place. And it's so easy for anti-faith to creep up. It's so easy for anti-faith to creep up. And we must avoid it. Because anti-faith neutralizes faith in our lives. And anti-faith in our church neutralizes faith in our church. So how do we avoid this? How do we overcome this? Well, a few things. One, we really need to know who Jesus is. That's why we said time after time in our definition of faith, that faith is based on a true knowledge of God and God's ways. So often we have been filled with idealistic distortions of God by well-meaning preachers who have not really grounded their sermons in the total word of God. I can't tell you, for example, the number of times that I've heard a preacher pray something like, well, if you have faith, you will never suffer. That's a lie. It's in the Bible. In fact, it's in every book of the New Testament, suffering is. And the expectation for suffering. The promise, and the one promise of the Bible I think I've experienced most consistently is the promise that we will suffer. And so if you are basing your faith on some idealistic distortion that some well-meaning preacher has preached and not on the genuine word of God, 
If you're basing your faith, another thing that often happens, we base our faith on our wishful thinking. This is what we hope will happen. This is what we hope our lives will be like. This is what we hope our marriage or our relationships or our work or our things like that will be like. And we get so much hope that we then start to engage in a lot of positive thinking uh, that, okay, it's going to work out. It's going to turn out like this. This is the way I hope. And then we can easily start deluding ourselves into saying, well, this is what God said when God never said that. And so we have to be careful because what often happens, if we engage in that wishful thinking and we start mistaking that for faith, when we get disappointed, it can turn into anti-faith and undermine us. So we really need to examine ourselves and say, do I really know Jesus? Do I really know his ways? Am I really walking with him? Second thing, we need to listen for the voice of Jesus in our lives and obey it. If you feel like Jesus is nudging you to go pray for somebody, then go pray for them. You know, you don't have to go pray for them in the way of saying, you know, I, the Lord has told me to pray for you, and if you resist this prayer, God's going to damn you to hell for all eternity. You know, you don't take that kind of approach. Just go and say, hey, I just had this nudge. Can I pray for you? If they say no, you say, okay. Sometimes it's just stepping out in obedience to the Lord. And as you listen to Jesus, not only for yourself on a day-by-day basis, we also need to listen to Jesus and what he says in the Bible and make that a basis for the way that we live and how that we act and how that we step out. If we take small steps of obedience in response to the voice of Jesus, that will build our faith. And I'm talking about small steps of obedience. It's very rare that God says to you, go empty out your bank account and give it to so-and-so or such-and-such ministry. It happens, but it's very rare that that kind of things happen. Most of the time, God builds faith in us by small steps of obedience, particularly small steps of obedience to serve others. Many times we get caught up in these small steps of obedience thinking that I need to take these small steps of obedience because somehow it's going to bless me. And there's a truth. God does like to bless us. But I've seen too many times where Christians get so oriented towards self-blessing from God and obeying God just to get their own blessing that they miss the truth, which is that we take small steps of obedience to bless others. The orientation of our lives is to serve and bless other people. The orientation of our mission, our ministry, as the people of God, is to serve and bless other people. The orientation of us here together in the church, we don't advocate people coming to church for their own personal blessing. It's great when you get blessed. I don't want you to not be blessed. But you know what? Every one of you are here because your presence is serving somebody else in this church. And you might think, all I do is come and I sit in the pew and I don't do anything. Well, don't be deceived. That's anti-faith. Your presence is more important. And if it's just presence, if you're doing it, if that's all that you've done, that's all God has called you to do, asked you to do, and it's just presence, then rejoice in your presence because your presence means more than you realize. Believe it and keep doing that small step of obedience. 
our lives are lived in orientation to other people. And when we have faith to serve, it's faith to serve other people. And then there's a third thing that's so, so key about battling anti-faith. You need to hang out with people of faith. You need to hang out with people of faith. Absolutely key. You cannot be a person of faith on your own. It is absolutely impossible. If we are left to our own devices, we will always gravitate toward anti-faith, not toward faith. And we have to be careful. And I'm not talking here now about people out in the world. You know, it's not the anti-faith of people in the world that neutralizes faith. It's anti-faith of the people of God. That's the case here. It wasn't the fact, it, remember in the, the area of the Gerasenes last week, or a couple of weeks ago, when Jesus cast out the 5,000 demons, the people there absolutely had anti-faith. People did not believe that the Jews were God's people, and they certainly would not have believed that Jesus was capable of casting out these demons, but he did. It wasn't their anti-faith that neutralized the faith of Jesus. In chapter 6, he goes to the synagogue, the people who should have had faith, the people who knew God, or at least said that they knew God, the people who should have believed in spite of the fact that they knew Jesus, and it was their unbelief, their anti-faith, that neutralized what Jesus wanted to do. And so we need to hang out with people of faith and we need to be aware of people who call themselves Christians but who are walking in unbelief. A little anti-faith is very, very dangerous. It's one of the reasons why I love to hang out with several of you here in the life of the church because you're living, you're walking by faith. I love being around Marcos who's uh, seen many, many uh, sick people get healed because it builds my faith to see that and I want to see it more uh, and we need to be hanging out with one another and telling one another stories and looking at the testimonies and reading as much as we can and listen to as much as we can about the amazing things that God is doing in the world and hang out together and encourage one another and bless one another and together take our small steps of faith because together God will build our faith and our faith will go stronger and stronger and stronger and overcome any manifestations of anti-faith. We can live by faith. We can serve by faith. We must resist the anti-faith but embrace the faith that we have in Jesus Christ. And every one of us can do this. Ask the Lord in your own life, Lord, is the, are there little steps of faith-filled obedience that I need to take this week? Show me what they are. Lord, show me if there is any anti-faith in my heart so that I might repent of it, I might renounce it and cast it out. And you know, it really is that simple. If you find it welling up in your life, you say, God, I am sorry I reject anti-faith in the name and authority of the Lord Jesus Christ and I command it to be gone out of my life. And that action of faith, just like anti-faith will neutralize faith, so faith will neutralize anti-faith. And as we step out in faith, as we repent in faith, as we walk forward in faith, 
God will build our faith through his son, Jesus Christ. And we will see God do amazing things. Let's pray. Father God, we love you and we honor you. We worship you and adore you and we thank you for your presence here with us in this place. Lord, I pray that you would root out any anti-faith in our lives and in our church. That, Lord, you would replace anti-faith, you'd neutralize it, eliminate it by genuine expressions of faith and the name and authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, now that you'd use this Lord's Supper, this bread and this cup, to increase our faith and to wipe out any anti-faith. Bless it so that it might be for us truly the body and blood of our Lord and Jesus Christ, broken and shed on the cross. Use it to increase our faith. May we not be like the synagogue of Nazareth, but may we be a people of faith, seeing Jesus do many mighty works in our midst, including healing the sick. We love you and we praise you and we thank you now. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.